We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and work of the 14th century Persian mystic Hafez. My guest is Gary Gak, the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Buddhism, as well as Pause, Breathe, Smile, Awakening Mindfulness When Meditation Is Not Enough. Gary has co-translated three books of poetry from Korean by Ko-un, Flowers of a Moment, Ten Thousand Lives, and Songs for Tomorrow. His anthology, What Book? Buddha Poems from Beat to Hip-Hop, received an American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation. He is an adjunct faculty member at the University of San Francisco and has recently released Hafez's Little Book of Life, which he co-translated with Erfan Mojib. Gary is based in San Francisco, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure as well. You are a translator of Korean poetry and of Persian poetry, and, and I think in both cases, it's fair to say you worked with native speakers of each of those languages uh, to do the translations. I gather, Gary, primarily, you're a poet yourself, so you have, you, you bring to the task a, a poetic sensibility. That's right. Um, I also have translated all the dynasties of um, Chinese poetry with a native speaker who really initiated me into the fact that I have this gift. <laughs> There's many things I've tried in life, from longshoreman to administrator in a hospital and so forth, but this is one thing I know how to do. When we talk about Hafez, a 14th century Persian mystic, the, the fundamental ground rule uh, for translators and researchers into Hafez has been, to my understanding, that it's not translatable, that if, if you're not a, a citizen of 14th century Persia, it's very hard to ha have a clue as to what he's talking about. Well, that's right. It's also true for other uh, people, human beings of that order of magnitude, uh, like uh, Akhmatavo, Blake, Basho, Cervantes, Dufu, Dante, Goethe, Homer, Sappho. You know, they're so rooted in their cultural soil and universal that it's hard to uh, bring without carry without the 
bring you need to bring the roots and everything that the roots are holding so you just can't repot it exactly and of all of these i think um persians are the most guarded about um hafez because on the one hand they think um that you know he's like their prize possession and on the other hand they're his prize possession well, there are a lot of paradoxes associated with Hafez, uh, one of which is, from my understanding, is that uh, he is considered antinomian. He rebels against the establishment, and, and yet he was supported by the establishment in his day. Uh, the word R-E-N-D or R-E-N-D-I in Persian is very hard to translate. Um, antinomian, yeah, well, you could say uh, free spirit, you could say uh, trickster. Um, and yes, he was uh, embedded in the court for much of his life as a livelihood. And yet he also was not hesitant to speak truth to power, to, for example, call out uh, the hypocrisy of um, uh, priests who say one thing but do another. Um, and that spirit um, is so that, you know, it may, you may find universal uh, analogies or analogs, but it's so rooted in Persian culture. And it's a, it's a key one. You, you've, you've, really picked, you've really nailed that in your uh, discernment. Well, in your book, uh, especially in the early section when you describe his biography, you point out that during his lifetime there were, I think, eight different rulers of, of Persia, and, and they were all very different. Some of them were quite liberal, some of them were uh, extremely autocratic, and, and at the end, Persia was conquered by Tamerlane, who, who was regarded historically as, as one of the most vicious characters in, in all of history. And apparently, Hafez had a, a pretty good relationship with this man. Yeah, exactly. In a nutshell, he was not uh, unused to uh, perilous times. And um, none of the rulers under whom he lived came to a good end. They all had violent ends. Um, and during those rules in his lifetime, the Mongols were picking away at various parts of the world, including Persia, which had been a great empire. And the Mongols were building a bigger empire. And so he was living in this time of, uh, you know, a radical uh, shift in, uh, well, certainly in geopolitics and all that that would uh, bring with it. He was rooted in Shiraz the whole time. And I'll point out that in his day, uh, Shiraz was like uh, Florence under the de Medici's. It's like the Athens of Persia. So he had a terrific seat in the house for the whole shebang. And at some point, you know, he had to go underground. Uh, he had, you know, said the wrong thing to his um, patron about poetry. He said, you know, your poet, he, he dissed his patron's poetry, which is like, oh, 
and he had to, but then there was this one ruler who came in who was a fundamentalist of the worst order. He was brutal, vicious, closed everything down. Um, and so during that period, uh, Hafez in isolation continued to write and, you know, he was inclusive. So he included the uh, politics. If I can just make it one more beat and speak in a 34 beat sentence for this. I think it's really interesting to me, and it may just be me, that in his embrace of the divine and the mundane as one, right, which is typically like the Song of Songs or the Bride of Christ, where the divine is a person and it's also the beloved unnameable fused uh, mirroring and magnifying each other. He also includes, as I hear it, the soul of the world. And that would include the ruler, but also just the state of the world as being like the anima of the times. So for him, all I hear all three as being... Um, bound together. And I gather amongst the Persian people, poetry is, is considered a, a high art form. The fact that the ruler, even a despot, would be practicing poetry suggests that they regarded poetry maybe the way we moderns regard popular music. It's something that everybody participates in one way or another. Well, I, it's a very important point. And on the way over here, I thought of a way of explaining. You know, if I go to a bookstore and I want to get the Dhammapada, which is pretty accurately words of the Buddha as spoken, it's a book of poetry. If I go to the bookstore and I get uh, Old Lao's Book of Tao in any of the translations, it's a book of poetry. Do they shelve it in poetry? No, they shelve it in religion, Eastern philosophy, spirituality. We separate the two in our culture. You know, Americans are pragmatic. They're about stuff. They're not, you know, they're not typically about the spirit except the other world and the, the hereafter until we had Rumi as the most popular poet in America for 10 years. And um, Omar Khayyam in his day was the most popular poet of the century. But in the West, we separate them. And in the East, in China also, for example, uh, the poets were uh, court, uh, uh, court members and the language of poetry was a court language as well as a language of uh, Confucianism or Taoism or Buddhism. So, you know, our lens is like we're looking at the wrong end of the telescope, really. And in Persia, because they're not separating into two separate things, philosophy, spirituality, and poetry in our reception of um, Persian spirituality, it, we typically come at it through poetry first. Omar Khayyam, Attar, Rumi, Hafez, 
uh, before we might go on to read strictly Sufi uh, philosopher uh, writers who wrote in prose. I gather Hafez was a Sufi himself. Sufi, the Sufis were mystics, and and I think the the history of Sufism in in Persia and elsewhere is kind of a mixed history. Many of the great Sufis were executed by the religious authorities, so it was kind of a mixed bag. Being a Sufi was a little dangerous. Good point. That's right. Um, I locate in a just general sense that Sufism shares a commonality with Taoism as against Confucianism, Zen as against uh, traditional uh, Buddhism, Hasidism as against uh, Judaism as a religion, um, the Christian mystics, the Desert Fathers, all share a kind of an underground commonality with different um, start, points of departure and different means. But um, certainly they get in trouble. And of all of them, the Sufis have had the worst um, it, you know, run-ins when, for example, uh, someone is trying to speak in a poem about feeling union with the divine and they say, no, 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 that's heresy. You can't say that you are God. <laughs> but did the person say that? If you read the poem, they were very tactful and precise as to the subtle difference of where the point of view is in the author, in the, on whose authority is this being written. But uh, yeah, Sufism. And just to dot an I in Sufism, if I may, um, Hafez was never known to be a member of any Sufi order. We're not sure if he had a, a peer, a leader, although it's possible, for example, that he studied with a group that was called the Philosophy of Love. Um, but we don't know. There's so much about his life that's unknown. It's as if he burned himself up as he went along to leave no trace but these poems. And in the poems, we also hear Zoroastrianism. And because he is, Hafez means to be able to recite, and he could recite the, the, the Quran by memory, he, he quotes uh, Jesus, Noah, Joseph in the desert a lot. Um, so in his inclusivity, he's very uh, embracing of a, of a number of different, um, what you might call, uh, denominations, faiths, schools. <laughs> well, I'm under the impression today, for example, we live in a, a, a very multicultural society. So I know you, for example, have been exposed to Hasidism and Zen and, and many different spiritual traditions, as have I, as have many of our viewers. It's a sort of a spiritual supermarket out there. And, and what I hear from people who are engaged in uh, various mystical paths is that they have more in common with each other than they have with the fundamentalists of their own faith. That's right. Um, however, <laughs> I personally 
uh, have a feeling that if I got there on the back of a camel or a donkey and uh, somebody else got there on the from the pointy end of a jet, yeah, we're all we all arrive at the same place. But personally, I think it counts as to the journey and the points of departure and the journey. So I, I look at both. Um, and I could give you a, a, an obvious example, and that's Sufism. Um, I'm not raised Sufi. I'm not raised Arabic, but I'm raised Jewish. And being raised Jewish, when I was exposed to uh, a lineage of 15 generations of Hasidism, man, I got it. You know, it's hard not to get Hasidism when you're in that connection with that presence of, of that tradition. And then when I was in the tradition, when I was exposed to the tradition of Buddhism, especially through the Vietnamese um, uh, teacher, may his memory be a blessing, Thai Nhat Han, I felt, I felt the presence. It was like it wasn't about the ink of my intellect. It was, it was the presence. And they, these traditions all say you have to abandon your intellectual, you know, filters in order to um, connect with something beyond words. Huh? But during my course of studies of Buddhism, initially, I was comparing it to what I knew. Oh, this is like what I've experienced in Hasidism. Until I was able to say, no, let me see it in and of itself. And now I'm at a point in Sufism where I've, you know, what, what am I, a Jufi, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I need to really connect more with uh, Sufi teachers because uh, we have all these things available to us, as you say, like the spiritual supermarket. But I think at the, uh, the next phase is um, grounding in a personal uh, practice that's connected with a community who has a strong teacher. And that's true for all of the ones you've mentioned. And I think many people, yourselves, guests on the show, listeners, have experienced this rather than, you know, going and picking and choosing uh, things out of books and kind of making what feels right for themselves, which can work to a certain degree as a, as a gateway. But then, you know, the caravan moves on. <laughs> well, speaking for myself, I, uh, like you, raised Jewish, but I'm a secular person and I've never joined. I'm not become a Buddhist or a Sufi or a Hasid or any of those. I admire them all, but uh, I suppose I keep them at a distance. I, you know, ended up studying parapsychology. That's maybe my path in life. Uh, it's hardly a spiritual path. But with, with regard to Hafez, you, you're suggesting he may have been a secular person himself in, in this regard, although in 14th century Persia, you couldn't exactly be secular. There, we've, we've, we've isolated your Hafez. <laughs> Great. And I think that's what Hafez is and does. Uh, it's, it's very much how we experience the kind of cyclotron of uh, ideas and images and experiences that he puts us through 
to come to our own soul connection and just to cross a T in connection. Parapsychology is spiritual, huh? It's not about matter. Scientists study the relation of matter. Western scientists study the relation of matter to matter. Uh, then if you study the relation of matter to non-local uh, phenomena, that gets more into a non-material. And if it's non-material, it's spiritual. It still can be secular. And if it's non-local to non-local, <laughs> then it's certainly not material, except to the degree that we, you know, we both have bodies to, you know, you know so forth. And I locate um, the uh, uh, art of spirituality of Jeffrey Mishlop exactly as you say, as someone who has delved more deeply than anybody I know in terms of connections to different sources and finding a base of your own, which happens to be uh, something that we still call, you know, what are we going to call it in 20 years from now? Maybe we'll have a better name for it. We might call it interconnection. Interconnection is, is a great name. I like that. All right. Let's talk about poetry in and of itself for, for a moment. I know you've written, for example, about the beat poets, and there, there's a sense it, it, to me, that the beat poets are a bit like Hafez in, in that they uh, had spiritual interests and they also were wildly engaged in life itself, breaking every rule, taking every drug, drinking every drink, uh, engaging in a wide variety of sensual pleasures, uh, but still dealing dealing with the core of what would I call it? Almost the, the the agony sometimes of the human experience. Many of the beat poets came to sad endings, uh, as did many great Sufis. How would you compare the beats with with a poet like Hafez? I've never thought of that before until now. What a, what a marvelous um, association. Yeah. Um, many of the beats like um, Alan, not many, but I think of, for example, Allen Ginsberg, he came from a place of privilege, and yet he crossed the line of his comfort zone in social standing and was familiar with uh, what Hafiz calls the dregs drinkers, the people who will close the bar at 2 a.m. or whenever the bars close. And he likewise inherited a prophetic tradition that not only uh, comes from his Jewish roots, but also he identified with uh, Whitman and uh, Blake and other prophetic poets. And the whole idea of the beats as a name came from beatitude. You know, this was at the time of the uh, possibility of the bomb wiping everything out after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And um, it's, a, yeah, it's a moment in time that uh, you could certainly make uh, a lot of connections between Kerouac, uh, Bob Kaufman, 
uh, Joanne Kiger, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, Philip Whalen, Lou Welch, um, to poetry, except <laughs> that Hafez was known throughout Persia and the Persianate-speaking world in his lifetime, whereas the Beats, you, you know, if you went to a bar, you could fit all of them in the back at, around, at one or two tables. So there's that difference. So compare, contrast. To my knowledge, Allen Ginsberg uh, w had worldwide fame. And in fact, my stepson uh, met him in China. Oh, that's true. Yes. No, Allen of all of them <laughs> was like the traveling publicist. Allen was the internet of the day. You know, he was plugged into everybody and everything. Um, but uh, Bob Kaufman? No. Kerouac, maybe, but not exactly in his lifetime. The difference I'm, I'm, I guess I should bring out is that Hafez was sung. And that was a, a, uh, a medium that included what we now call the troubadours, the trouvères of the 14th century in Europe, which then influences Dante. And the lyrics would, would travel all over the world and would be instantly sung. Uh, the stuff I remember in the era of beatniks were mimeos and xeroxes. And yes, it opened a door to spoken arts. The first reading of the, uh, the Sixth Gallery sort of inaugurated spoken arts in America for poetry. Gosh, you've got me going. I could do the whole <laughs> thinking aloud about this. That's great, Gary. And uh, I'm wondering about the role of the poet in society. I've heard, I interviewed one poet many years ago, David White, and he he seemed to say that the, the role of the poet was to enable people to, to get in touch with uh, something deeper and truer within themselves, ultimately, calling people I don't know, you might say to a, a mystical place, but I, I'm not sure he would use that word, maybe a more authentic place within themselves. And doesn't David White inherit the Irish bardic tradition now? So, yeah, he's another of these voices that are speaking rooted in a cultural soil in which poetry is more than just uh, something you see on the internet with a nice picture. It's something that you not just read aloud. When you hear David White read, he'll read a line, then he'll read it over in the next line. He's creating the poem as he reads it. And his sense of a social conscience was there from the beginning of his, his writing. Uh, and, a, and a very unique figure at that. Whereas, um, Mary Oliver, who I would posit as, I'd position as, um, a pioneer in our time of spiritual devotional poetry, not necessarily religious or anything like that, but intimate with the source of life and one's own connection without ever bringing up uh, the state of the world as David White so often poetically does.
So, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's up to the, it's like it's up to each person and each poet to find where they uh, want to position uh, themselves in this vast um, uh, banquet called life. I, I gather people regard Hafez as, as being in the tradition of Rumi, who I, I believe was about a hundred years earlier. And, and Rumi is regarded, he founded a Sufi order, was regarded as a, a person close to God, close to uh, a, an expression of pure love, uh, as the Sufis think of, of love, divine love. That, that this is also part of why Hafez is, is regarded so highly some 700 years after his death. Well, I'll, I'll see you and I'll raise you one. Uh, my friends in Iran are really kind of like, what's up with these Americans trying to discover, are they discovering or are they, are Hafez? Because to them, they're aware of the Rumi phenomenon. They're aware that Attar's Conference of the Birds has been translated. Some know that, you know, Omar Khayyam was very popular. Um, but to them, in Iran, it's like this, and Hafez is off the charts. He's, he's not in the, some people, and there are people in, in Iran who disagree. They say, no, Rumi, Rumi, Rumi. It's like, you know, is it Anna Karenina or is it War and Peace? But it's, but it's more. In, ha, in Iran, Hafez is not only considered the poet philosopher, he's considered an avatar who is an oracle. And you go to any home and, with a bookshelf, you'll find a Quran and you'll find a copy of his poetry, well thumbed through, well worn, memorized. Everybody knows him by heart. They may not be this. They'll know lines of of Rumi. They'll know lines of Atar, Sadi, Kayam. But Hafez, they know by heart. He is. Um, if if Rumi, Omar, I, I'm going to uh, riff on Omid Safi saying. Rumi is like a deep ocean of wisdom, and Hafez is like a brilliant jewel. Okay, I'll keep the ocean metaphor. Rumi is a deep ocean of wisdom, and Hafez is like Shakespeare, about whom Keats asked, which play you like depends on how you like the ocean best, as a storm? as rain, as, you know, this or that. He, he encompasses, he's so inclusive and, and equanimous in his reach, not only in subject matter, not only in his grasp of Persian culture, um, but in his innovations in Persian uh, uh, style of singing and writing. So... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing and I'm just kind of 
raising that up to a few more orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. Well, I do know that many great writers uh, in the Western tradition, writers like Goethe and Nietzsche, regarded Hafez as being uh, the literary equivalent of Shakespeare. Uh, but as I think about it, Shakespeare universally regarded maybe as the greatest writer in any language was uh, largely secular, I would say entirely secular. I see almost no traces of mysticism in Shakespeare, but in Hafez, one, one finds exactly that. Well, <laughs> it's true that in Hafez we can get a pretty good read of the various secular, non-secular uh, uh, views of the time without him ever having taken any of the vows. Um, Shakespeare seemingly might have been influenced by Giordano Bruno, right? Who is a character Brown in one of his plays in a time in the Renaissance when uh, uh, new uh, 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 spiritual uh, perspectives were opening up. Um, also, I've looked at Shakespeare in terms of alchemy, and I see evidence that uh, the plays per are performative alchemical uh, rites with uh, the different um, elements and planets uh, coming into various relations and resolving and, you know, oppositions and uniting. But... We don't know. <laughs> right. Well, I will grant you, there is a, a, a level of hermeticism that comes through Shakespearean plays. He was clearly influenced by, by the hermetic culture. And I guess at that point, uh, one might wish to compare the Western esoteric tradition, the hermetic tradition, with Eastern mysticism. And, and uh, I, you can, I suppose, scholars will debate this for a long time, and you can correct me if if you think I'm wrong. But I'm of the opinion that the Eastern mystics were much more concerned with the ultimate source of things than than the Hermeticists were. Hmm. Uh, if I think if I open my mouth. It'll be a big mistake. So bubbles will come out. Uh, I think you just had a mouthful, Jeffrey. Um, I'll just say one thing. Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, comparing um, psychology, once quipped, Western psychology is nice, but it's like kindergarten compared to Eastern psychology. Um, that said, um, I don't know that it's how much we actually know about the hermetic traditions of, uh, you know, the, the pre-Renaissance, the Renaissance, um, and how much of it was necessarily uh, bound up in imagery and the church, in order to preserve its own tradition, 
in a situation where they were more imperiled and uh, at risk, uh, a uh, endangered species, if you will, in the culture, than in the East where uh, spirituality is has just never really gone underground unless there was like a Confucian backlash for a period of time or something equivalent or as it happened under Hafez. Um, but I'm merely putting a personal footnote upon your, um, your wise observation. Well, I guess what we're getting at is, is the nature of language itself to communicate uh, reality. Uh, reality is a very elusive thing, and, and it's very undoubtedly very presumptuous of me when I refer to different intellectual traditions to know or, or to presume to know what was really going on behind the language. I took the point of view of Lao Tzu, who says, those who speak don't know, those who don't know speak. But deeper, um, I think we're back to poetry, that Lao Tzu used poetry in order to convey what ordinarily gets uh, filtered out by the nature of any language system, Eastern or Western, and saying Dhammapada is poetry. uh, in Aramaic, it's poetry. Uh, portions of the Old Testament, certainly poetry. And there, I'm hearing language at a different level. It's like in, in Zen, there's a common saying, you know, first there's a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. And if you start off by thinking these are mountains and these are rivers, well, you may be in a dream. You may not really be seeing what's in front of your face. And when you see what's in front of your face, you see, oh, this mountain isn't really a mountain. It's, 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 it's several mountains within it, and it's got rocks, and it's got trees, and it's got living things. And where does the mountain end and the sky begin? And, and then you can say, oh, it's a mountain. And I think that's what the poets do. They come to the point after the, the uh, trial or the, the, the the uh, furnace or whatever the alchemical equivalent would be of um, transforming and healing the wounds of language and using language in a way that's healing and transformative, um, which is probably completely off from your original question, I know. No, not at all, Gary. And in fact, it's getting right to the point I would like to address, which is that Hafez and and Rumi and Omar Khayyam all wrote about the tavern and, 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 and intoxication. And they did so in the midst of a Muslim culture in, in which alcohol was forbidden. Right. So we're back to your initial question of antinomianism. In a different way. Uh, so you make the statement, is there a question or, or is it just a prompt for me? Is it a prompt? <laughs> it's a prompt. <laughs> so uh, let me take a step back and then a further step back. The first step back is, yes, uh, wine is uh, technically illegal in a Muslim country. And so we have the Rendi, the antinomians who go, no, you know, uh, it's used in court. 
in courtly uh, gatherings, they would have wine parties, wine pop-ups. And at the outskirts of town, there would be uh, Zoroastrians or Jews who maintained a little tavern. But this is all kind of, it still is covert if it's not within the court. And so the empire is far away. And so the further are you, you are, the more you can maybe you know, get away with this. Mm. And then you have the, and, and Hafez certainly partook of both. He, he was at courtly wine pop-ups and at these uh, taverns where the dregs drinkers would open and close the place, you know, uh, 24 by 7. And in my hearing of it, it's a point of initiation. Um, it's, Yes, it's 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 the 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 point at which we come from our suffering, our inability to connect completely with life as it is and who we are and and find some way for ourselves. It might be escaping it initially anywhere but out of this world as Baudelaire says. But we find it's an initiation into oh, waking up, a different way of viewing and so we have both. We have Hafez is talking about real grapes. Kayam is talking about real grapes, certainly. And the goblet is the human body that the soul is filling with the spirit, the Holy Spirit of the wine. And we get a whole symbolism of the tavern keeper. Who is he? And the tavern keeper has these... Um, like geishas that are serving the wine, they're male geishas called saki, uh, who are groomed to be uh, people you're going to fall in love with at the tavern, it's just so it's going to open your heart. So uh, the language of words finds a different form of expression in these poets when they talk about wine, because it's both a literal and a symbolic uh, merger uh, where it's up to us to hear for ourselves. Talk about a synchronicity. Here for ourselves, right. <laughs> <laughs> I promised I'd take a step back. And the step back is uh, the way that I put it together for uh, readers today. Well, actually, it reminds me of something else. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. Um, the first thing is that the book is arranged in five gardens. Hafez does no arrangement, and even within the, the poems themselves, there's no arrangement often. And we've taken fragments and, and then worked with those. Okay. And the first is the world where we encounter uh, things we talked about earlier of the state of the world, the soul of the world, and uh, reasons for despair and so forth. And then the next is going to the tavern, going to wine 
as like who wouldn't in such a circumstance, but then getting an initiation. So it's kind of like a, it, it's a kind of a Sufi journal journey. Um, and from wine, we go to love where the, the beloved, uh, secular or non-secular is, um, that which is deepest within us that we're finally connecting with or finding our separation and seeing how difficult that separation is and finding how to go past the separation and language is a point of separation. And then it goes into wisdom, which is a very intense part of the book and then ecstasy. Uh, to use this analogy just one more way before we're back, <laughs> um, you might say that this this book uh, makes Hafez new by pouring his ancient wine into new bottles. But I think it's more than that, because I think it's more than wine. I think it's uh, making him now in our present moment. So his um, ancient bones can dance and we with them. One of the things that you've done in this book, as I understand it, is rather than uh, include the, the, the lengthy poems, you, you've broken them down into very short segments. Mm, that's, that's exactly right. And um, for whatever reason, uh, mainly that he's untranslatable. <laughs> we discovered, or rather my partner in Iran, Erfan Mojib, uh, showed me uh, these workings by the pre preeminent uh, Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiristami, of the uh, leader of the Iranian New Wave Cinema, who made four books of uh, Persian poets using a technique of his own, where as a filmmaker he would either look at them in close-up or as big shot depending on your point of view. Is it a close-up? Is it a big shot? And then he would edit them into lines so that a line or two would become a poem. Mm. Apparently, there are others I'm discovering who have felt that in presenting Hafez in English, this kind of vignette approach uh, is, uh, might be appropriate. And then putting them together, <laughs> that was the next collaboration and making possibly uh, a unit of its own. Could I ask you to read uh, some of the translations that you've created? Oh, well, I'm honored that we can not just talk about <laughs> It starts off in the Garden of the World with a very brief fragment. Between these two doors, this caravan. And then it goes on, and I, I won't read those. Um, love, this is from now um, the Garden of wine. Love is a huge pearl. I am a deep sea diver. 
the ocean is the tavern on the outskirts of town. These are all so nice, I could read them twice, but I'll, I'll see if I can get through some of these. I'll read like four or five. Um, these, these two follow each other in the book. No, I'll read th I'll three out of four from this page. Uh, if you're our classmate in the school of love, drown your notebook. True knowledge isn't there. Where is the mystic who understands the language of lilies? Why do they leave only to return again? I asked the old Magus, when did the all-wise make you a seer? Same day, he said, as the great Azure Dome was made. I would gladly trade the Garden of Paradise with the shade of its heavenly trees and the celestial castles with all of their nymphs in exchange for the dust in the alley of the friend. Don't take this moment. Don't take this moment of friendship for granted. In the front door, out the back, then to meet again, no more. Here are two short ones. One's at the bottom of a page, top. The night of separation is gone. The welcome scent of unity has arrived. What a wonderful morning after such a wonderful night. In this garden, in this garden, in this garden, white-haired Hafez prays to God. Let me sit again beside a stream with a lovely tall cypress by my side. No surprise if in seventh heaven lyrics composed by Hafez and sung by Venus entice Jesus to dance. Those are wonderful, Gary. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your, your vision and your knowledge of uh, this awesome tradition. It's, it's been a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for being with me, Gary. Jeffrey, it's an unspeakable pleasure, a privilege, and a divine delight. Thank you so much. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here.
I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.